Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 415. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Bas Chaya Sara Altais, Yikusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todders ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altais. So we are in the last week of the month of Av, and we're going into the month of Elul. This coming Shabbos will be the blessed, will be blessed the month of El, which will begin Rosh Chodesh El a week after that. So obviously, it's a very momentous transition period in time, and time is energy, and therefore, it has many lessons that it contains for us in helping improve and grow in our own personal and collective psychological, emotional, and spiritual lives, both in our own our own lives, our relationships, and ultimately also our relationship with God. I say ultimately, not in a way, in a distant way, but rather that that is the ultimate purpose, is fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. So as we've been discussing in the previous weeks, this period in time reflects the interesting cycle as we move from pain to joy, from loss to gain, from betrayal and things that were broken and ruptures to reconciliation and renewal. And therefore, it's not surprising that we come from the saddest part of the year, which is the three weeks and the nine days, concluding with Tisha B'Av, and then the momentum begins to build to the 15th of Av, a holiday that, that is compared and equated with Yom Kippur, as we discussed last week and two weeks ago. The 15th of Av, leading into the month of Elul, when Moshe Rabbeinu finally goes up the third time on the mountain to continue his beseeching God for forgiveness for the great sin of building the golden calf, a, a, the infidelity of betrayal, and ultimately gaining that forgiveness 40 days later with Yom Kippur. So if you think of it, it's a, literally a, a, a journey a journey in time, a journey in our energy, and a journey in our own personal lives, and no matter what we go through, there are these cycles. So we're literally at a place now where we're talking about, as we move, thank God, to the upper end of the cycle, as we conclude the month of Av. As I number, mentioned a number of times, that of the mazel of Av is Aryeh, Leo. Aryeh is an acronym for El Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Yishan which is fascinating, that the very substance, the very energy of of gives birth to those most powerful days, Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Neshan, Rabbah, which is really the structure of, of, the, of the next 40 days, which is all about forgiveness and healing and compassion and empathy and the revelation of the 13 attributes of divine mercy and compassion, so they are actually constituted of, constitute, comprised of Aryeh. That's what makes up, which is an essential point in life that it's not just that difficult times lead to better times, but the better is actually an outgrowth, literally like the, the blossoming of, from the seeds of setbacks, of loss, of betrayal, of pain and dissonance, actually plant the seeds for the greatest types of growth. So with that, let us 
begin, firstly speaking, this week is also Pasha A. Where we're now entering the third week of the Shiva de Nechemta, the three weeks of the seven weeks of comfort. Again, comfort that follows the three weeks of affliction and oppression. So we're in the third week, Pasha Re'e, after Veschana was Nachmu, Ekev, and now Re'e. So we'll begin, let's talk about the Pasha Re'e, several questions that came in, that all also feed into this theme in more particular ways. And that begins with, let's start with the first question, what is the meaning of curses in the Torah? So here we go. The beginning of this chapter begins, Behold, I present you today two paths, the path of bracha, of blessing, and the path of opposite of blessings. The Torah, in its inimitable way, is very explicit. And it talks about both the positives and the negatives in this chapter. So the obvious question is, why, why are we being told it's one thing if it happens, but here we say, behold, I, I place before you today, I give you. And the word is neisen lefnechem. Neisen comes from the word matona, a gift. Kol neisen ba'en yofer neisen. That when a person gives something, from a Torah point of view, giving is not begrudging, it's not like pull, pulling teeth, it's being given with a good heart. So why would we call a gift? The gift of blessing we understand, but why is it a gift? that we're also given the gift that's the opposite of blessing. And of course, it feeds right into also what we've been talking about. We're coming from the month of Av was a month of opposite of blessings. The beginning of Av, especially in the ninth of Av. And the answer lies in what we just discussed. Because the, the opposite of blessing, what is sometimes called a curse, a klola, is also a blessing. It's just a different type of blessing. So when someone tells you, and you ask somebody, what's the right path to travel on? Let's say you're beginning your journey, you're going to business, or you're looking for your spiritual um, destiny, and you ask someone, a more experienced, seasoned person, and they tell you the following. Here's the path you should go on, which will lead you to success. And here's the path you should not go on, because it will lead you to failure, or actually be quite, quite negative and destructive. So which, is a, 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 which is one is a gift? The answer is both. Because just as important as it is to know where to go, it's also important to know where not to go. So when you talk to someone that's been through trial and error and learned the ropes, and they tell you, don't try that. That's been tried and it hasn't worked. That's a great blessing because you can spend a lot of time and energy and heartbreak when you take the wrong path. So when you think of it that way, what's being, what is, I'm presenting you today Behold, with a gift, the gift of the path to go on and also to know what to stay away from, what to avoid. So then it's a blessing, avoiding negative behavior and avoiding things that will cause destruction, that will cause problems. So that's on the most basic level why, what the, what the meaning of these curses are. So if you think of it that way, it's act, an act of love. Love is not just telling someone what to do, but it's also telling them if you, if you avoid doing these and these things, you'll be successful. That's also critical. If someone were to tell you only what to do and they don't tell you what the, the pitfalls and the trappings, that may not always be the, best, the, the, the complete blessing. It's good to know what to do, but you also want to know what to avoid. So that's on a very basic level. But then we go a little deeper. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in reference to the curses set from the top of Mount Ebal, Ebal someone told me that the Alter Rebbe taught that these curses 
are really hidden blessings. Can you please give an explanation of how these apparent curses are really blessings and why couldn't Hashem just give extra blessings for Mount Grizim, Har Grizim, instead of taking some of the blessings and hiding them within curses? Very good. Okay. So, very, so this is more than just avoiding. It's saying that the very curses themselves are blessings. So the first, le- the first meaning in it is because it's telling us what to stay away from and that's a great blessing. But it goes even further, that even the negative aspects of it are really deeper blessings. And the Alter Rebbe does indeed explain that, starting from the Kutatayr in Bechukaysay, where there's the first time that there's a Teichacha, where you hear about the things that are opposite of blessings. There's Teichacha in this week's chapter, and Kisove, of course, in a few weeks from now, is the one with the most negative, or so we'll call it the opposite of blessings. Says the Alter Rebbe that these are truly equally brach, they're blessings. To the point we know the story that when the one year when the Alter Rebbe was not reading the Torah and Mitla Rebbe heard someone read Pasha Kisove, the Teichacha, these not opposite of blessings, he fainted. And they asked, why did you faint? He said, when I heard what kind of curses, he fainted. He said, what about every year? Every year you, you hear the same chapter and you never faint. He said, when my father read, reads the Torah, I hear only blessings. So what's the meaning behind it? So there in Chukesa, the Kutatera, the Alta Rebbe, the site explains that it comes from Chesadim Nistarim, that there are deeper levels of love and compassion and positive energy that can only be expressed in a container that looks like the opposite. In other words, in regular Chesed, regular kindness, you express in regular words. But if you want to express a deeper dimension that can't be contained, the negative is sometimes the right language to use. Not because it's negative, it's because it widens the containers and forces us to dig deeper. In a way, you could say in psychological terms that when you have to deal with a challenge, you have to elicit, it elicits greater strengths and energies. The Tzemach Sadiq brings there actually the Gemara Moed Katan, where Rab Shimon Bayechoi sent his son Rabbi Lazar for blessings to Bnei Marova, to the sages in the West. And And he came back and he said, they, to his dismay, he says, they didn't bless me, they cursed me. Said the Rajbi to him, what did they say? And when he told him what they said, he said, no, what they said was really brachas. So of course the question is, why couldn't they just say it in open language? And, and the ultimate explanation, there are different explanations given, we've discussed this before in this program, is because that to really give blessings, the deepest type of blessings are the ones that are concealed. Because revelation has its parameters. You want something that's beyond those parameters, you need to conceal it. And concealing it in a language that can appear the negative is actually allowing for wider parameters, broader horizons, and greater blessings. And that's why, indeed, in Pasha Kisove, the Samach Tzedek, and in Echa, the book of Lamentations that we read on Tishabov, that they're explained in a positive way, and then you suddenly see that these negative terms, actually, when you translate them, as Rajbi did to, for Rabbi Lazar, they actually are the greatest blessings. So, indeed, this is perfect timing why we read this chapter this time of the year. Because Re'e is always either Shabbos or Mavarchim the Shabbos that blesses El, which means it will always be in the month of Av. It's essentially the bridge between the sad month of, month of Av, where we say, Memayetim besimcha, Meshenichnes Av. When this month enters, we diminish in joy and the transition, the bridge to the month of El, which is a month of compassion. 
Chedesh HaRachemim, the month that prepares us for the new year, the month when Moshe Rabbeinu will be granted the forgiveness ultimately after 40 days. So how appropriate is that in this week, in the, in that, in this week of Re'eh, we talk about Re'eh means to see, to visualize, a vision, that it's not just you hear about it, but you actually can visualize and see, behold, the blessings that are there both in the revealed blessings and even in the concealed blessings, even deeper blessings. So ultimately, Aryeh, which on the surface is like the lion that destroyed the temple, actually becomes, when you interpret it deeper, the, is the lion that rebuilds the temple, the third temple, referring to the god. So Aryeh of has, on one level, has a negative aspect to it, but it's also the time when Mashiach is born on Tishabov. And it gives birth to the month of El. Re'ei. Okay. So, with that, let's go to another topic in this week's chapter. And the lesson from this is quite clear as well. As we said before, no matter what happens in your life, there's always a deeper dimension to it. Obviously, we are seeking to have everything in a revealed form. But when you understand it, that helps reveal it when you can accept it and celebrate with it, which is ultimately the real purpose. And that's why in this, in this week's we are comforted after the affliction, not just after, but coming and transforming the negative into a positive. In this week's chapter, we also read at the end of the chapter about the pilgrimage. During the times of the Beis HaMikdash, it was required that everyone make a pilgrimage to Yushalayim three times a year. On the holidays. That's why it's called Aliyah Leregel or Regolim. The Shleish Sholish Regolim. What's Regolim? means holidays, but Regolim also means legs. Because they actually walked and traveled to Yerushalayim three times a year to the Beis English. What was the reason for this and what can we do today to accomplish to, and connecting to similar energies? Can it be as simple as observing the mitzvahs connected to the holidays, such as waving a lulav, eating matzah, and hearing the Aseris Adibris, which is the Shalash Regal? So the answer to that is, first of all, the Torah says, Why do you go to pilgrimage? Because this is where the Divine Presence was on earth. They came to see and be seen. Again, the word seen, lirois, like re'e. What are we seeing? It's perceiving and experiencing godliness in a very real way. When you hear about it from a distance, it can have an impact on you. But seeing, when you see something, it's a very different experience. So they actually went to Yerushalayim, went to the temple where they were allowed to go. Remember, you couldn't go into the temple in every part because the there are parts where only Kahanim or Levim can be. But all of Israel, all the people went to be seen and, and to see and be seen, which is the ultimate experience of communion, of love. Well, you, don't, you don't just have a relationship, but you come to be seen and see and experience godliness. As he explains in Lakut Tate in many different places that this was their bonding and connecting with the divine in a very intimate way. So even today when we don't have the Beis Hamikdash, we still have the concept, which is to prostrate themselves and to um, to sublimate themselves, and sort of called accept the divine that we have the same thing three times a year during the Shalosh Regalim, 
And indeed, it is through the mitzvahs that we do. So it's not necessarily going to actual physically Yerushalayim until Lassad Lov Mashiach comes, then we will. But it's the similar concept that we have that presence and awareness in our lives to the deepest, in the deepest possible way. That's how we fulfill it today. So it's really about recognizing what is the essence and center of our lives. That when we live our lives in a way where we are where we are recognizing that wherever you are in the world, Yerushalayim remains the center. Beis Hamikdash is the center, which is why we pray toward the east. And though physically we may not be there, but our hearts and minds and souls are there. And where a person's mind is, that's where he is, or she is. So this all creates a connection between us and, and godliness. So it's true of us of the Migdash Vishakhanti Bisekham, build for me a temple and I will reside, I will dwell among you. Means in our hearts and souls, wherever we may be. But there's even something more than that, that there's actually a physical place on earth that we pray toward. We don't just say, discover the base of Midrash within you, we actually stand and face the east. Because we want to connect also as much as possible, physically, and ultimately merit to the third temple, which will be in Jerusalem in the Harabayas. And then we'll have the whole Ariel Leregel in the fullest possible way. The Pasuk says that every Shabbos there'll be a form of Aliyah Leregel. And of course every month and so on. Okay. Another theme in this week's chapter, uh, let's connect that as well. So what is the month of all? We of course talk about the destruction of the Temple due to divisiveness, to baseless to senseless hatred. So what's the tikkun for that? The repair is super rational love. So when we talk about Lir Regal in the parsha of Re'eh, in this week's chapter, we're also talking about how to rebuild the Beis Hamidrash and how to reconnect with it. So it's also connected to this period in time. And one more theme we'll talk about is Nisirinus. So this week's chapter talks about prophets, talks about a false prophet, who may do magic tricks and other things that may fool people. So don't buy into it. So you'll say, so why would God allow a person to get up there and be able to manipulate people? That there should be even a consideration and the Torah has to forbid us not to follow a false prophet. So it says, God tests you, testing you. In order to know where you stand. Sometimes there are tests. It's called an Nisoyen. So the questions, a few questions that came in about, well, how does an Assyrian test, um, what is, for, now first of all, the question is, what is an Assyrian and what is his purpose? How does it elevate divine sparks? And how does it increase one's perception, one's das? And then one more question, which I'll do at the end in this topic. So Chassidus talks about Nisayinus, there's Maimorim about this, in Tov Shalom uh, Hey, the Rebbe spoke, he actually said three Maimorim around you based Tamas on this topic. Nesatel Recha, Nesli Snesis, where he talks about um, the a concept of Nesoyin from Maimorim Echsidis before the Rebbe, that talk about the difference between Nesoyin and Birurim. Birur, we are familiar with the concept. Birur means clarifying, separating, and ultimately refining and elevating. What are we elevating and refining? The sparks. So we live in a world where the divine sparks are scattered everywhere. And it's our mission 
Each of us is allocated with a certain amount of divine sparks. Let's call them spiritual opportunities that are embedded in everything we do. In the food we eat, in the drink we drink, in the business we do, in the interactions we have, in vacation, anything. Anything comes your way has, put, has within it concealed divine sparks and, and are waiting for us to release them and free them and elevate them. That's called Birunim. So it's called Birunan Etsutsas, where instead of just eating a meal for your own indulgence or neutrally, you actually eat it with a purpose, L'shem Shemayim, for the, divi- for the divi- sake of the divine, to become stronger and do a mitzvah with it. And the different ways, explains in Tanya in chapter, especially in chapters 6, 7, and 8, about how we elevate it toward Gdush, especially in chapter 6 and 7. That's Bidurim. So it's actual work. The spark is concealed, and we need to find, we need to be wise enough to recognize it there. Like the famous story of Chaim Rappaport in the Baal Shem Tev, we told him that the water was waiting from the beginning of time for you to come and make a blessing on it. So everything we encounter is waiting for us to come there, and that's how we have to look at the world and all our lives, waiting for us to elevate and separate the spark, separate basically the nutrients from the waste, and elevate it towards the purpose of our existence. When a person works, or eats, or sleeps, and they don't do that, then they're living, they're surviving. They're not necessarily doing something forbidden, but it's not aligned with the purpose. That's Bidurim. Nesayin, Chassidus explains, is a test. Nesayin is not an actual Bidur, because you're not refining something. Like the Nesayinus of Avram Avinu, Chassidus brings the example, that when Hashem told him to go to the Akedah, for instance, which was an Nisayin, the ten Nisayinists that he encountered, all of them were not, were, were illusions. The sun, for example, created a body of water that he should think there's water there, but there was no water. There the Nisayin is more in the Gavra, not in the Chefza. In Birudim, you're talking about taking and transforming very existence. In Nisayinists, it's more the person can be fooled, and you don't buy into it, into the deception. Like in this case, where someone, a false prophet, and we recognize that this is not the place to follow. It's like speaking what we discussed earlier, not to go down this path. And when you do that, that elevates the person, the sign also from the word ness. Ness means like a flag. It elevates your spirit because it creates a clarity of your connection. So there's bidur where you're actually refining and clarifying and separating the sparks in existence. And the sign is more for the human being. So when a person, just take a simple, a simple situation where a person, let's say an employer, is testing his worker. And he may even know that he's testing him. He puts up different, different challenges to see how he's going to behave. Will he be loyal? Will he, give it all, all, will he give it all his energy? Will he be innovative? Which is the way we test people. Not test just to test in order. What happens when you do that? When the person who succeeds and proves himself they come to a higher level of das, a higher, deeper awareness. Because when you're not tested, you don't know what, how strong you are. Now you know how strong you are, and you know how deep you're committed you are to the one that's testing you. In this case, it's God. So Nisoyen creates a deeper level of perception, das, also from the word hiskashrus. We know das is about bonding. And the connection to our time, to our, this period of time in the year, is the same idea. After the Jews built the golden calf, God, God said, they're challenging our very relationship. 
and it was Moshe Rabbeinu through his prayers and ultimately gaining forgiveness where Hashem said, Salachti Kedverecha, I forgive them, on Yom Kippur. So the relationship was tested in a very serious way and it could potentially have broken apart, God forbid. And yet, it created even a deeper relationship which is what Yom Kippur is about, that comes through tshuva. So Nesoyen was turned into a positive. So there's the element, like I said, where you transform an object or experiences in life, and then there's the person becoming a deeper, much stronger, and a much more aware person, which is das, awareness, but also awareness in connection to the relationship, in this case with the divine, with God, that the Nisoyan leads the person. So it has a very particular purpose. And it also answers the question about elevating the godly sparks. It's not so much the sparks within objects because of what we discussed, but it draws down a new type of energy in many ways, even stronger than Birurim, as these Maimorim speak about and discuss. How does going through an Assyrian test give a person more das, and how can we make a keli for this das in order for, to use it for positive improvements in our lives? So whenever you feel tested, or wherever you feel challenged, I should say, see that as a test that allows you to draw and evoke deeper strengths. That's really what it comes down to. Now, there are times in life things are going smoothly. We're not tested. But there are times when we are. And don't see the test as a negative. See it as a positive. It's here to elevate you and to bring out your deeper strengths. Which, of course, is also appropriate to the time in which we are. So this leads to another question. What does it mean that Hashem never gives someone a problem they can't handle? So this is based on the Medrash, also the building of the Mishkan. When Meshul says, how can we build a Mishkan for you, God? So he says, I'm not asking you to do something, the people to do something that's commensurate to my strengths, to God's strengths. I'm asking you to do something that's commensurate to your strengths. Which means if you're asked means you're capable of doing it, because it would be simply cruel and insensitive, achzorius, for even a human being to ask their worker to do something you know they're not capable of doing. So anything we're asked to do, we're capable of. So if we're given an assign, a test, or other challenges, it means we're capable of overcoming, of overcoming it. Is it easy? Not necessarily. But this became a form, fundamental cornerstone of so many of the Rebbe's answers and approach to, to life. You'll never see the Rebbe ever succumbing or surrendering and saying, no, you're right, it's too difficult to do. If it came your way, if it's optional, then we don't know. But if it came your way and it's your shlichus and mission, it means you absolutely have the strength to overcome it and succeed. Because there's nothing that is more powerful than your mission. So if something comes your way, it means that you have all the strengths that necessary to deal with it. And that's not surprising. You are in a Shama that was a divine soul. Like he brings the beginning of Tanya from Gimel of Nida. Mashbin means an oath is taken, but it also comes from the word Mazbin from Mazbia. We're sated, we're saturated, we're fed, we're nourished and nurtured with strengths to be able to be more powerful and overcome the temptations and the challenges of the animal soul. So we have all the strengths we need. So this person is writing, what does it mean that, that we can... We see every day, sadly, that people die. Obviously, in those cases, those people had a medical problem. They couldn't handle and resolve. 
And to go take it a step further, you see situations where people gave up. I don't want to speak all the worst possible scenarios, but we can imagine. The answer is they still had the strength. They just did not see it through. And this is not meant to be critique. It meant that they did have the strengths and either they were blinded or people around them did not encourage. This is the fact that people in certain situations ended up not the way they are expected. The fact that people die, that's another story. God decrees certain things. That you try everything you can and God still wants to do what he wants to do. That is not a contradiction. You still have to do everything possible. The results are not always up to us. How do you know? Maybe that's exactly what's meant to be. But additionally, if a person gives up, we're not talking about a situation where God creates this. I mean, the Jews that died in the Holocaust, they, of course, did not want to die there. But that was a decree, a gzeda. They had to do whatever they could to save themselves, but many did not. So to say it goes in the category that they're given a test or a challenge and they, that they cannot overcome, and look, it did overcome them, that was from above. But we're talking about a scenario where you do have the power and sometimes we don't access it. Or we don't know about it. This is one of the big challenges. I could speak personally that when dealing with people who have challenges, sometimes they feel I don't have the strength. So the job that we have is to help them uncover those strengths, help support, help to bring other strengths that can maybe can can be a catalyst that stimulates or activates the strengths they do have. That's part of how we help each other. So that's the answer to that question. Okay. Now we're talking about preparing for El. This coming Shabbos is going to bless the month of El. So let's start by, by this is the time to start. The Rebbe brings from Svarim that Achofov, which is the yard site of the Rebbe's father, is 40 days before Rosh Hashanah, which the Gemara says that 40 days before the birth of a child is, 40 days before the birth of a child, Yomachis, it's announced who's going to marry whom. So the birth of the child, the birth of the human race, the human being, was on Rosh Hashanah, the sixth day of creation. Forty days before that is Chofov. In other Svarim it says that forty days before creation, before Chofayel, is Tubov, or a little earlier, depending how you calculate it. And that's why indeed it says that So we begin already to bless each other for New Year's because... As I mentioned before, Elul gives birth to Elul. Uh, of gives birth to Elul. So the birthings, the seeds of Elul are already right now being planted. So it is a good time to begin. Even though Elul itself is a preparatory Chedesh HaChonah to Tishrei, but that doesn't mean we can't prepare for Elul. The more you prepare for something, the more successful you'll be. We see this even physically. If you have a, a job interview or you need to make an important presentation, the more you prepare, the more successful you'll be. So let's talk a little about preparing for Elul. And we start with, does the king in the field manifest in physical ways? When it's taught that the king is in the field, so this is the famous Moshe of the Alter Rebbe that, that, that um, explains, if the whole month of Elul is a month of compassion, so isn't that the essence of a holiday? That a special divine energy is radiating. And here's the energy of Yud Gimel Sarachim. So why is the month of Elul not completely holidays? And he explains, because the revelation comes like a king in the field. A king in the palace, that's a holiday. A king in the field, before he re- arrives to the palace in Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and so on. 
So in El, he's, the example he gives, he's traveling and he's standing in the field and he's dressed in the garments, not the same garments that he, that he has when he's at home. It's more the journey garments that he in, interacts with his subjects. And anyone can come over and ask him for anything. And he will grant the request with with a smile and with simcha. That's the month of El. So just explaining king in the field. So this person is asking, when it's taught that the king is in the field, does it mean Hashem takes on a human form and greets people in the physical world? Does it mean the man I met in the cornfield wearing a straw hat and overalls that taught me something interesting may have been Hashem? Or is it the teaching, or is the teaching a parable as if to say the energy of the month of El is as if the king were in the field? Okay, interesting question. So first of all, let's remember this. All year round, Hashgacha Pratis is divine providence that God works through the, through the farmer in the cornfield, through a taxi driver, through scholars, through lay people, through everyone you interact. So we don't say it's God that you're seeing. You're seeing it's God working through these people. And yes, what they say can have a, is a message for you. So in that sense, in the month of El, it's even more so. So I would answer both are true. So I wouldn't call it the king in the field. I would say the divine revelation, as in the example of the Alter Rebbe, the divine revelation of compassion is there everywhere. And that can manifest in so many different ways in our physical lives, in our lives as we work in the field, which is our work days, our weekdays, as the Alter Rebbe explains. But in addition to that, it also means that Hashem himself is more present and you can ask for everything you need during this time. And God will grant it. We don't need the preliminaries and all the introductions that you need in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. That is the key, second key point. So both are interdependent. Where does God make his presence? It could be when you're davening. It could be when you're doing mitzvahs. And it could be when you're interacting with others. In general, the gates are open, essentially, with less layers, because the king is more present in our worldly activities, in our mundane weekday activities, Okay. Since El is also, as Chassidus explains, as we prepare for the new year, it's also a month of tshuva. So let's do something on that. And we're only doing a little appetizer, so to speak, on these matters. The truth is, as we get into El, this will only accelerate. But it's worth starting to get into that mood, as the Friedrich Rebbe writes, famous Lukut Edibur in beautiful Sicha, that when the Rishchei El, the beginning of El, started, the wind started blowing and you felt the Ruach, you felt in the air, in Lubavitch, you already felt the spirit of El. The Rebbe has a whole Sicha explaining all the details of that. So that's the spirit that we're getting into. Hi Rabbi, hi Rabbi Simon. I really appreciate your talks. How would you explain repentance to someone who is not that familiar with it? And can you give practical tips about how to go about it and how to implement it in, into one's life with actionable, actionable tips? Thank you. Okay. So, let's define tshuva. Tshuva. Tshuva, as we know, is much more than repentance. The Rebbe explains that repentance means leaving something. You're repenting regretting and repenting over something that happened. Tshuva means return. It's actually the opposite. It's returning to the essence of who you are because whatever was transgressed 
That was the aberration. That was the, anomal- the anomaly. And now what we're doing is going back home, so to speak. Now in tshuva itself, there's two levels. There's tshuva tato and tshuva law. So this explains that it's all relative, but Elul compared to Tishrei is tshuva tato compared to tshuva law. Simple example. If you, want to, you bought, if you want, you bought new furniture and you want to bring it into your house, the first thing you have to do is clean up the room. You have to get rid of the dust. You're going to bring new furniture and you haven't cleaned the dust, the furniture will get dusty and dirty. Tshuva Tata is cleaning up our act. Let's first clean up someone we may have hurt, ask for forgiveness, make amends, repair things that are broken, things that could have been better. So then, once you clean up, then you could say, now let's bring in a whole new energy, Tshuva Yilah. Tshuva Yilah is not on a sin, Chassidus says. As a matter of fact, the expression from the Alter Rebbe, Chassidus cites it in a number of places, not like the mistake that the world makes. And Elam comes from the word Helam Vahester. Not like the mistake that the concealment makes that Tshuva is only on a sin. That's on a basic level. You did something wrong, you corrected. Tshuva Yilah is it's returning and connecting deeper a spirit that's reuniting with its maker so it's actually an act of love that's why tshuva ilah is ma'ava tshuva tata it can be more from yira from fear or from respect or all i mean had different explanations even fear of punishment because you're dealing with dust and you're cleaning up something tshuva ilah is that return where you embrace Someone you love. So the Jewish people built a golden calf. The first thing they needed, tshuva tatoi. They have to deal with it. You did a terrible thing. They had to really make real amends, real soul search, introspection. Then comes Enyam Kippur, tshuva ilah, relatively speaking. And now we're re-embracing and reconnecting. That's why it's called Yem Chasanose. It's a day of marriage. It's not just a day of licking our wounds or not licking our wounds, repairing and healing from our wounds. It's not just damage control. It's not just surmana. It's actually a deeper embrace and a deeper level of love. So how do you implement that practical tips? It's looking into your own life, a little accountability, or a little more than a little, where you are making a cheshbon an efesh, introspection, soul searching, things that can be repaired, things that need improvement. It's as simple as that. That can be explained to everybody. All healing, all recovery, all repair, all, all ruptures have to be dealt that way. First you have to acknowledge and become, a, first you have to be aware and acknowledge the problem. You do what it takes to repair and then you climb and try to connect in a, even a deeper way. So if one person betrayed another, first you have to make the amends and then the love and the connection has to be even deeper, not just go back to square one, but to a point where you actually can experience something in a far deeper and higher level. Okay. Hello, Rabbi. Can you provide a fresh perspective on the high holidays? Well, we will do that as we get closer to the high holidays. I think I began already expressing it. But I'll just say one thing and we'll elaborate on this in coming weeks. The high holidays are not just commemorative days. Where Rosh Hashanah, we remember the creation, the beginning of creation, the beginning of the creation of man and our responsibility. Yom Kippur, the day of tshuva and sanctity. Sukkah is the day of celebration and joy. But it's actually three profound, fundamental foundations in our lives. Whereas Rosh Hashanah is a form of renewal. 
renewal of anything in our lives, finding a new beginning, a new opening, a new energy enters into our lives and into existence. Yom Kippur is not just tshuva over a sin, like I just said, but it's a deeper connection where we understand the concept of hope and the concept of forgiveness and the concept of building a deeper relationship with God and with each other. And sukkah is the idea of celebration that all this should be done with joy. So it's actually three principles that we all need in our lives. And the more you can make it relevant to you, and the more you can associate it to personal experiences, the more the high holidays take on a real fundamental relevance. And they become more dynamic, and you'll do it more passionately. Sadly, the high holidays poses this ultimate paradox. On one hand, we all anticipate these special days of awe, days of joy, and people say, oh, this year I'm starting, I'll begin a new leaf, turn a new leaf, start a new beginning. And then many of us get disappointed. Either in ourselves or in our surroundings or in the synagogue or in the rabbi, whatever it may be. So this is why I actually composed a book called 60 Days. Not to meant to give any, create anything new, but to make the high holidays come alive in a very deeply personal way. It's a 60-day journey that begins, or Shel, literally, first day of El, all the way till the last day of Tishrei, 60 days. And each day is a thought, a meditation, an exercise, plus laws, customs, events, and just interesting things that people can do step by step. And when you do it in 60 days, it's much more manageable. Because each day, one step at a time. So 60 days turns into a transformational journey. Check it out. Took a lot of chassidus, not just chassidus, nigla as well, and packaged it in this book called 60 Days. You, you know, I might as well already say, you can receive a daily email, subscribe to it, a free daily email, that, that sums up that day's activities, that day's exercise. You can also go, we have a, a podcast each day, a few minute a message, an audio message that you can listen to. Just go to the podcast 60 Days by the Meaningful Life Center. And as well as other resources that you can check out on our website, either meaningfullife.com or chassidusapplied.com. These are two websites that uh, we... we um, where we showcase that platforms for, for applying chassidus to our lives. We'll talk much more about this as we enter deeper into the season and continue and accelerate our preparation for a truly transformative new year. Okay, let me just do quickly some follow-up, beginning with last week's two parshas. So there are some questions that remained and we're not answered. One of Parshas Ekev. Last week we read Parshas Ekev. Yesterday we read Parshas Ekev. Last week was the Parsha. Is there a connection between Parshas Ekev and Yaakov Avinu? Who got his name because he came out while grabbing onto Esau's heel. That's why he's called Ekev, Yaakov. So obviously in Torah, as soon as you have two words that are called Ekev or Yaakov connected to Ekev, have a connection. One of the meanings of Ekev, Chassidus says, is an Ekvas of the Mashiach, the heel of Mashiach, the end of generations. Yaakov represents Yud Ekev, bringing the divine even to the lowest levels. As the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 2 in Tanya, Ekvas of the Mashiach, Ekev is even the souls that are not that revelatory, that don't have necessarily the passion and all the power 
of the divine souls of Atsilus and the higher levels of souls. In, not like Reshechem Shivtechem, the leaders, but the wood choppers, the water carriers, even so called the simpler souls, but they are the Akev. And Chsidis explains on one hand, they're the lowest part of the body, to the point that the Ovis de Ravnosan says the Akev in the body is similar to the Malachamovis, to the angel of death, because the Akev has very little sensation. That's why it walks on the ground, and, it's very, and, and, and it has the ability to walk even on sharp objects. Obviously, shoes we need to protect ourselves. But you don't walk on your head, and you don't walk on other sensitive organs. At the same time, the Akiv carries and holds up the whole body. To the point, Simcha stated, we dance with the piatis, with our, with our heels. So it's the heel that has both elements. Chesidus also gives the example that the heel, when you go into a hot bath, you first put the heel in, just to test how hot it is. You don't put the head in. Because when it comes to Mesiris Nefesh, the heel, the soul's, that are the last generations, the Akev, are the souls that have the capacity to go into even the hot water. And that prepares us and to bring out the deepest strengths that Dafka, the, the specifically souls on that level. This is all hinted to in the word Yaakov. In contrast to Yisrael, the name that he was given afterwards, Li Rosh. There he's talking about Rosh. Now we're talking about Yaakov, Akev. So that's the obvious connection. Exodus does explain how. I've not seen explicitly a connection between Yaakov and Eka, but I'm sure in Eratere he probably makes that association. So this also connects to this time period, because we're talking on one hand, you could say the month of Av is more Akev because of the concealment, the divine concealment, but that leads and elevates us all the way to El Rosh Hashanah, Yem Kippur, Hishayinah Rabbah, Simchas where we dance with the bottom, the, the, the lowest part of the body elevates the entire body, including the head including the Tater that we dance with, which is a celebration of Yom Kippur, actually. In Parsha Veschanan, we learned about Shema. So there, is there a connection between women covering their eyes when they light the Shabbos candles and we, and we covering our eyes when we say Shema? So ostensibly, there's two separate things. The reason the covering eyes of a woman when she lights Shabbos candles is because... Generally speaking, you make a blessing before you perform the mitzvah. Like when we light Hanukkah candles, first you make the blessing, then you light the Hanukkah candle. But Shabbos poses a problem. Because once you make the blessing, it's already now you've ushered in Shabbos. And Shabbos, you're not supposed to light a candle. So we do is the opposite. We light the candle and then we make the blessing. But because the purpose of the candle is to introduce the pleasure, light creates pleasure. Like the Alter Rebbe brings the Shulchan Aruch from Chazal, from our sages, that you can't compare eating a meal in the dark and when you eat a meal when it's bright. So light is part of pleasure. So the first pleasure you want to have is not just seeing the light before you make the blessing, so you cover your eyes, so when you open your eyes after the blessing was made, the first time you see Shabbos light, it's already Shabbos now. So that's the, that's the way we do it. We light the candles, cover the eyes and make the blessing. Also the custom, women think about the different things they ask for. It's a Yitzman Zgula, an auspicious time to ask for anything. When it comes to Shema, the main reason we cover our eyes is because we're going to say Hashem Achad, there's only God. And we don't want to be distracted by anything else. It's like closing your eyes and just focusing on the oneness of God. Can the two be connected? 
I'm sure you can find a deeper connection. But that's essentially the, the point. Because when a woman closes her eyes, it's not just because of the pleasure, it's also, it's also fo- focus and concentration. So it's not just to avoid seeing the light until Shabbos comes, it also has its own intimate moment. Like whenever you close your eyes, you can connect to something deeper without the distractions. Okay. Since we're also talking about rebuilding the Beis Hamikdash, so let's talk a bit about that. That's been the theme the last few weeks as we go from Tisha B'Av, the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, Almanas, in order to rebuild it. So we had many different questions. I just want to go a few through a few of them here. We see in many places that in the Torah that the scripture goes out of its way not to use negative language and negative terms. The most famous example is when it describes an animal as not pure. Instead of using the negative term tome. Correct. The Torah will add words in order not to even insult and say anything negative even about an animal. So why would Chazal use such a negative and insulting statement and say every generation of the Beis Hamidrash is not built? It's as if that generation destroyed it. When a more positive way to express the same sentiment would be with a beautiful, truthful statement that every generation where people do Torah and Mitzvahs, it's as if they rebuild the Beis Hamidrash. So in a famous sikhin, it's printed now in the Kutis Sikhs, Chelik Yud, volume 10, when the Rebbe brings this topic, he actually discusses, so why do we see in the Torah that it does say the word Tameh? You sometimes see it says clearly the word Tumah and Tameh, foods that are permissible, behavior that's not kosher and so on. So the answer is, when it comes to halacha, you have to be absolutely crystal clear. And there you won't just couch it in order not to insult because you're not insulting. You're coming to tell clear instructions. You can't be vague. So the Torah will say, this is kosher, this is not. This is pure, this is impure. When you're talking more in terms of like a sipur dvarim, you're telling us a narrative, and you're describing the animals that went into, let's say, the Noyach's Ark, there there's no need. It's not a halacha thing. So the Torah doesn't use the word tome even on the animal. So applying that principle, you could say here too, the Yerushalmi that makes the statement is not coming to insult. It's coming to drive a point home how responsible we are. It's not meant to say you're culpable in the destruction. It's meant to say the opposite. If you don't do something to rebuild the temple, it's as if you destroyed it. And because it's like halacha, even though it's not a technical legal law, but to drive the point home, if it would say that every generation who does what they have to do is like rebuilding, it has, or every generation has the power to rebuild. That's beautiful. True. But when you're here, that in a sense, the Churban Besamidish is a pu'ulah nimshachas. That the destruction is not a one-time thing. It continues as long as there's divisiveness. As soon as you eliminate divisiveness by adding an avis Yisrael, avis chinam, which counters sinas chinam, baseless or senseless hatred, through super-rational love, that rebuilds the Besamidish. And if you don't do it, the, the destruction continues. Which also explains why Tisha B'Av is so relevant today. It's not just something we're remembering. Because we're also remembering right now, focusing on the constructive point. Do something about it. What will motivate a person more when you just say the positive? So when it comes to saying something that drives the point home, Chazal use it. But we also know Chazal is not coming to 
create despondency or negativity, coming to drive that point home. That's how I would explain this uh, piece. Another question, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I found my notes from the 1980s when you taught in 770, I think, you were teaching about how the kalim of the Beis Amigdash, of the temple, correspond to our body parts. Can you please share where I might, might find these in Yonim in English? Thank you for your awesomely, awesomely wonderful work, revealed blessings. And usually we don't mention a name, but in this case, this person would like us to read re- her name, so I'll mention the name Dabra Spinner signs this. But I just want to assure everyone, everything is anonymous. Any question you ask, we don't even know who you are. In this case, not only did she tell us who she is, but she wanted us to read it, so I'm reading it. And uh, honoring her and honoring us. Yes, indeed. Um, there are a number of Sfarim. Let's start with the Rabbeinu Bechaye, the Shalah, and others that actually, on the Pashan Truma, that talk about how each part of the temple the Mishkan corresponds to the human body and the human being because we were created in the divine image and the Mishkan was also structured that way. Briefly, there are three parts. this Kedush Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies, the Holy, and the Azara. And the outer part, or the Oyal Mayad, so what you have is that you have the Kedush Kedoshim is where the Oren is. That's the, the mind, the Mayach. So you have, you have Reish, Guf, Regal, three parts. The Reish is the head, the Mayach, the mind. That's with the Aron, the Holy Ark, with the Torah in it. In the Kedush is the torso, is like Guf, the body, right, left, center. So you have the three, the three uh, containers, the three Kalim. The Mizbeach HaPnimi, Akhtaris, of gold, inside, in the middle. And to the right you have the Shulchan, and to the left the Meneir, the table, and then the Meneir, the candle, candelabra. And on the outside, you have the Mizbech HaChitzen, which is the Mizbech for Karbonus, which is refining the outer world. It's like an interface between the world and the Beis Amigdash, briefly. And it goes into detail. Then there's a sefer called Teres HaElo from the Ramah. The Ramah, Ramesha Isherlish, the Mapa, the cover, so to speak, of the Shulchan Aruch. So he wrote an entire book that explains how every part of the Beis Amigdash, every piece, corresponds to the Kabbalistic levels and also to the personal levels in our lives. The Rebbe in the Zeshima cites these sources and explains it. The Rebbe has a Zeshima Menorah and other Zeshimas where he quotes these sources about the correspondence. And that's also part of how we rebuild it. Because when we build ourselves and align our bodies and our souls to godliness, that's the Veshechanti Pesechem that prepares the ground to rebuild the third base Amigdash, which is mirrors us, and we mirror it. Okay. Another follow-up. Some more follow-up. Thank you for the niggin you sang last week. It was very touching. Can you share the name of the niggin? The name, I don't know if there's a specific name. They call it the niggin Nikolaev. Nikolaev is the city where the Rebbe was born. And that's also where the Charatana brothers lived. And they were composers. This nigan is composed by one of them, I think by Rav Shalom Kharatanov. And it's a nigan, so it's called Nikon Nikolaev, but there are other songs that are also called Nikon Nikolaev. That's as far as I've researched it. So that answers that question. There are two other follow ups, let's do them. And we will then conclude. Here we are. Um, last week in the episode 414, you spoke about which day is the happiest day of the year. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I first want to say thank you for all the material you put out. 
Secondly, I wanted to comment on the question asked last week regarding the happiest day in the Jewish calendar. As I listened to you read the question, I immediately thought of the Radbaz, Rabdavid ben Zimra, who lived 1479-1573, answer, his answer to a Jewish prisoner who was granted one day of the year to come out of prison. This prisoner asked the Radbaz which day should he, he should choose. The Radbaz first rejects another rabbi's answer to choose Yom Kippur, or perhaps Purim, to, due to the reading of the Megillah. Instead, he reasons that since any day which you come out of prison will afford you the opportunity to perform certain mitzvahs, which you, which as a prisoner you would not be able to do. Therefore, he tells him to pick the nearest day. Your answer was along the same lines as this. I just thought it interesting and perhaps helpful to share a source. Thanks again for everything you do, and Hashem should grant you success beyond your imagination of fulfilling the Rebbe's work. Okay, thank you very much for that, and for that Adbaz, very good. Another follow-up to last week's uh, program. Hello, Rabbi. On your show last week, you discussed the reasons the tribe of Benjamin was allowed to rejoin the other tribes after their crime, where they violated and killed a woman and then fought a war instead of turning the perpetrators over to the courts for justice. So the other tribes determined not to marry. On Hamish Asabov, the 15th of Av, that oath was disavowed, and from then on, the tribe of Benjamin was allowed back into the community. So you said the reason was that, that the generation that committed the crime was long gone and it would be unfair to punish their offspring that didn't do anything wrong. Your reason makes logical sense. It's actually not my reason. I should say commentaries talk about it. However, and when you look in the Gemara, you see, however, how do we reconcile this with the verse in Exodus 34.7 that says God punishes children for the sins of their parents for three or four generations? Okay, let me respond to that first and then to the second part of the question. So I just have to add something I said. I didn't just say it would be wrong to punish the offspring. It was that they took a vow for themselves because they had experienced it. That doesn't mean a vow for all generations. So in addition to being wrong, it was just a vow, a limited vow, which makes sense during that time. But once those people died out from Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin, it's not just... Not punish, it's, it's not just that the other Jews can now, the, the other tribes can now enter. It's that, the, the, it's that the, the vow is only for the generation. So just an additional point that adds to, a little to this. And how do you reconcile it? Well, what it says there that is when the Torah says, that's, and the God says that, that he will, he will carry something over, but not this is what human beings took upon themselves. So they don't have to be the ones, they took an oath that's limited to their time. They don't have to do it the way God says it. When God says that, that's God himself intervening. That needs its own explanation. Why would God do that? I think I spoke about it as well in this program. But there's a very big distinction because these were the tribes did it on their own. This was not a command from above. They did it more out of Yeshur, a menschlichkeit. Also, it's not allowed for us to marry someone from Amon, from, from Amon or Moyav, even if they convert. If Amon and Moyav did something wrong to deserve this, why wouldn't we rescind this decree as the generation that did the wrong has been out of the picture for thousands of years. In other words, why is this prohibition forever? If we want to make a distinction and say the rules are different because Benjamin is Jewish and Amun and Moev are not, why is there a law saying non-Jewish Egyptians who convert and are Jewish for at least three generations are allowed to marry us? So even though the Egyptians wronged us, we forgive them after three generations, but not Amun and Moev. So what's really going on here? 
So first of all, the commentaries talk about this at length, that Amun and Moev is a very particular rule due to a certain element of their personality that is not conducive for, 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 for marrying. So even though Rus came from Moyav, and therefore there's a particular exception there, but generally speaking, that's the distinction. That's why you don't find this a rule regarding other nations, not just the Egyptians. But that's really another discussion, not for now, the distinctions. The point being is that when this case with the Jews themselves said, because Benjamin did that, that's why we don't want to marry with them. That was a particular time, a particular cause. And Hamisha Sebaov, remember, the most important thing is that unity ultimately prevails. So there was a time, there are times you need to have that type of boundary and uh, limitation. But the ultimate goal is reunion. That's why all the other reasons of Hamisha Sebaov all about reuniting. When Mashiach comes, it says Eliyahu Novi, we'll reunite and we'll be able to recognize which families belong to which families. He'll clarify connections and unifications that have long been lost. You know, today they do DNA testing. But the ultimate will be the ultimate unity when we'll be able to recognize how we're all really connected despite our differences, the harmony within diversity. And that's the place, time we are in now is to increase, ultimately, is to increase as Avis Yisrael and Ahdus Yisrael, finding unity among us, first of all, within ourselves, personally, within our families, communities, and by extension, our cities, our countries, and ultimately the entire world. Discovering the godliness in everything and recognizing that there'll be the, the unity of the divine will permeate every individual detail and we'll see that harmony within diversity. Everyone should have a very blessed week to transform the of of into El and we could already say a blessed year materially and spiritually should be a year of Gu'ula in the literal sense of the world, word, especially after everything we've gone through, which has born the, which created the seeds that will give birth to the Gula Amitis Vashlema. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This is my life, Chassidus Applied. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.